followers, welcome to Mentally Sounds Life in Lockdown podcast series. This is episode 73. My name is Ricky Thamen and I'm your host for the next hour. Mentally Sound is a mental health and mental well-being show. The idea is that myself and my guests talk candidly and at substance about anything and everything to do with mental health. So on that basis, as a disclaimer, we do urge you to go and see your GP or your crisis centre, your therapist, if you find the topics or discussions distressing for you. A reminder that Mentally Sound is a podcast, formerly a radio show, that pre-existed the pandemic and lockdown, so we adapted to podcast medium for the meantime, during and post-lockdown. If you listen to us on Spice FM, Newcastle's fantastic community radio station at the heart of the West End, you can tune in via 98.8 FM or online via the website at spicefm.co.uk and we're on air Tuesdays at 1pm and repeated on Saturdays at 3pm. If you'd like to get in touch, perhaps be signposted to a guest or seek advice from a therapist, you can email us at mentysound at spicefm.co.uk or get in touch via our social media. We have links to all our shows as well on Twitter or at underscore mentysound, on Instagram we're at mentysoundradio and on Facebook it's Mentally Sound Radio Show and incidentally on our Facebook header page you'll find the updated archives of all our podcasts including all the listed and relevant topics underneath that might be useful to you. We're also on the relevant podcast platforms. Look up Mentally Sound on Clips, spelt C-L-Y-P, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker and Apple Podcasts. And on the show this week, my two guests are, first of all, Mike Downard, who's the founder of Gratitude Games. He hopes to put on a special event next year in tribute to all our NHS frontline and emergency workers in the style of a, a sort of a mini Olympic Games and also raise awareness of their own mental health. Second guest is Samuel Badcock, who I literally bumped into in the streets. And uh, he's got a campaign also raising awareness about gambling addiction. And uh, we'll talk to him about his campaign and his petition. Uh, he's got an interesting backstory as well. So without further ado, please enjoy the show. Thank you. And I'm delighted to have another great guest joining us. His name is Mike Dynard, and he's got, uh, he's got an exciting new project. It's actually a registered charity, I believe. Mike, how are you doing, sir? Thank you for being on the show. I'm very good, Ricky. Thank you for having me. No, no, you're very welcome. Mike, before we talk about yourself and, and uh, this exciting project um, that you've got planned for uh, next year, um, first of all, how are you doing? And um, as these podcasts are called Life in Lockdown... Um, what's the last sort of couple of years been like for you, um, both for yourself and maybe family, friends around you in terms of, you know, the virus and everything? Yeah, uh, life's good. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a serving firefighter in Buckinghamshire Fire Rescue Service. So mm. life in lockdown for me has been, um, a strange one in a sense that, uh, while other people have, um, stayed at home and uh, spent more time with their family. I've kind of had to be at work more mm -hmm. than I probably normally would have done, yeah. uh, filling gaps through people being off with COVID mm -hmm. um, and, and just the uh, fire service ticking over. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been it's been uh, probably a reverse for most people for myself. Yeah. In that sense. I mean, uh, that's really interesting. So with you being a firefighter, um, 
because of course you 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 guys on the front line got all the 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 you know deserved plaudits for for kind of like looking after us through through all those you know dark dark months but um um given the nature of your work how um in what way was it maybe different from a time when it wasn't a virus i mean were people more um i mean were there more fires for example or were there more kind of like i don't know did you find yourself going out on 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 emergency calls more often than usual uh we we very much had a uh a change in policy that we were we were locked to our station a lot more. So we, mm-hmm. in the fire service, uh, the police are the same and others. We, we, we do a lot of community engagement yeah. uh, in the normal time. Yeah. Um, uh, and that was ceased really just because of schools not open, yeah. um, not being allowed into certain places. Mm-hmm. So we were confined to our own station uh, unless there were emergencies to attend. Mm-hmm. Um, certain types of emergencies so road traffic collisions for example yeah. they were greatly reduced because people weren't yeah. traveling and people yeah. just weren't out on the roads um but the number of domestic yeah. um incidents whether yeah. it be supporting the ambulance service or mm-hmm. uh domestic fires and, and other accidental fires and such certainly increased mm-hmm. during that time so it was it was um yeah it was quite a, quite a strange time for us really yeah and um yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, uh, these thoughts come into my mind of what that must have been like for yourself. But of course, a big thing about the, the, the last couple of years was things like PPE. But I guess as a firefighter, um, was there anything extra you had to do there? Or were you all kind of like geared up anyway to deal with, you know, the virus out there while you were attending to people? No, no, we... we um... So we have our normal PPE that we would wear to any incident, um, and it certainly changed with with COVID. We went yeah. from knowing exactly what we would we would need to wear to six or seven different flow charts, depending on the questions that you asked when you arrived or en route, uh, to the different types of PPE that we would have to wear. Yeah. Um, we were we. Were, we were never short of PPE, um, and when I used to sit and see the NHS in the situation they were in, mm-hmm. um, thankfully in the fire service we were never short of that. But yeah. uh, it was certainly a, a a very different world for us to be living in. Um, and normally we would go into people's homes with the the, the sort of thought process of we're here to help. Um, and okay, we were going into people's homes with a fit with the the same we're here to help, but fearful of what we were going into because previously the going into somebody's house was we were there to put a fire out or to do whatever we were there to do Mm. um whether it be rescue somebody for from uh locked in a bathroom for example Uh, but now we have to consider um not only for us at work but then taking that home to our own families and so Mm. put a whole new spin on going to people's houses that we'd never even thought about before absolutely absolutely well, you know, as as you know, me and and all the listeners are, are full, full of gratitude for all the work that that you and your colleagues, you know, particularly over the last couple of years. So, um, very much thank you for that. Um, so that's really interesting, Mike. Um, in terms of frontline people's mental health, from what I've heard, um, I know sort of blue light projects have sort of raised awareness, but you, um, in your line of work and amongst your colleagues. You mentioned about you know your your colleagues' mental health, and you saw people sadly take their own lives. But so you felt there was something needed there more to to raise awareness in this field, yeah? Yeah, it, it's um, I mean, if if you 
if you think of somebody not in the emergency services during lockdown, um, the majority of, of the UK were, oh, sorry, during lockdown, were at home with their mm-hmm. families. Um, and yes, some people were at home and alone and had a lot of time to reflect and think about things. And it, and it, it must have been very difficult for everybody. And, and, and um, we have to respect that it doesn't matter whether you're blue light or whatever job you do, it was a very, very difficult time. But for us in the emergency services, we were going to work, um, seeing some traumatic uh, things. Mm-hmm. And some of those people going home and sitting on their own for two years, nearly, mm-hmm. a year and a half of not being able to really speak to anybody uh, and living with this. Um, so so if the impact of COVID and lockdown, I think that would be the, the biggest thing for those in the emergency services, especially... Yeah those in the NHS who were seeing unprecedented deaths. I mean, they, we, we're all in the emergency services. We, we expect that we're going to see some pretty nasty things. But for mm. those in the NHS, they, mm. they were having people come through their doors that they they yeah. weren't seeing deaths on that scale. And that, yeah. that's something that they just weren't used to. Yeah. Uh, and I can't imagine how some of those people were feeling and coping. So to me, I just needed to do something. I needed to raise awareness of the fact that one in four emergency service workers had considered taking their own life prior mm. to lockdown, let alone during lockdown. Um, mm. and I think those figures still remain the same. Mm. Um, the fact that there wasn't sufficient funds and yeah. there wasn't enough awareness from the public of the people that are known as the ones that, are, that will be there to save you when you need them yeah. are probably at the lowest the majority yeah. of the time. Yeah. Um, and we need them to be in the best frame of mind to be able to deliver the the, the best public service to, to the whole of the UK when they need them. Absolutely. And that was my driving in this is to say enough's enough and we need to support mm. those who support us. So without a doubt, what you're seeing there as well is that um, the last two years have kind of exacerbated this sort of situation in regards to, you know, the the, the level of levels of trauma that you guys see on a, on a regular basis. And as you said before as well at the beginning, that the help just wasn't there. Um, yeah, I, I think on that, the, the, the trauma itself of what we see, as in the incidents we attend, mm-hmm. would be the same. But the coping mechanism was very different in a sense of um, when we finished work across the whole of the emergency services in in the NHS, we only had one place to go back. It wasn't that we could go and and fill our minds with other things to try and cope with what we were seeing. We we were literally locked in one place and then going back into into that situation again. Undoubtedly. So... So then, uh, on, uh, well, was it literally like a sort of a light bulb moment with the Gratitude Games? I mean, how did that come about? How did the name come about? What was the what was the origins of that? Um, honestly, Ricky, it, it was a dream. I, I woke up <laughs> uh, one morning and said to my wife that um, I wanted to put on uh, a I wanted to put on a sporting event. And I talked to her previously about a charity and, and how we can support mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I didn't want to do was set up another charity. With all due respect, there are uh, hundreds of mental health charities out there. Yeah. And they all do fantastic jobs. Mm-hmm. And what the emergency services didn't need was another 
charity to find another um, group of psychologists and specialists to support them. What they needed was some funding and structure and awareness, which is what UK Emergency Services Giving will hopefully achieve, uh, where we will direct without any overheads, all of the money that we raise will go directly to mental health of these of the emergency responders. Um, but for, to enable us to do that without putting on uh, I don't know, um, car washes that the fire service do or other events, yeah. the gratitude games was, was the event that, that I dreamt. Um, so similar to Invictus or the Olympics, for example, mm-hmm. and it will enable us to bring together in year one, 20,000 people. Yeah. Uh, we've modelled ourselves similar to the um, London Marathon. Right. So we would then look to ask for all of those people taking part to raise a minimum of £100, right. which is not a great ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that achieves us £2 million per year over the next five years, so £10 million to, to really plough into supporting mental health of this very needed sector right and um in terms of people who might be interested in wanting to compete what are what do they have to be basically what do they i mean i imagine they have to have some sort of prowess in in, the, in their field chosen field or is it just going to be a free-for-all no, type we aren't looking for the, the we, we really are not looking for the the strongest or the quickest or anything yeah. else what what we want to do is create a well first of all we we didn't want this to be for uh, the the general public completely. So mm. the, the games themselves, the gratitude games, are for serving and retired members of the emergency services. Sure. Uh, and the list is the 17 of them, including the prison service, NHS, mm-hmm. uh, blood bikes, uh, RNLI, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted it to be for those individuals and their immediate family for them to come together and become one as a fa- as a as a group of people that have all witnessed the same trauma or yeah. all understand each other's um, th- I don't know, uh, understand what we've seen in life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, um, and for us to celebrate the fact that yeah, it is okay to not be okay, as the the phrase goes, mm. and for the public to show gratitude to what we do. Um, by supporting it um, and raising money for what we're doing as well. But it, it kind of goes hand in hand that sport is recognised as a, as a great, um, not a healer, but a great um, a great tool to as a coping mechanism, a healer uh, for mental health. Mm. So if we can combine the sport with getting all of those emergency services together, yeah. um, hopefully we can, we can generate huge awareness, huge funds um, for mental health and ultimately put some of these people in a much better place to serve when they go back to work. Brilliant. I mean, I have to be honest with you, Mike, part of me is is thinking, one half of me is thinking, what a brilliant idea. And the other half is thinking, it's a no-brainer. Why didn't this happen, you know, a long time, long time ago? Um, So when you you had that spark, I mean – Presumably, you you had a chat about it with with colleagues, and I was wondering what their reaction was, and and where did you go to next in terms of you know, um, you know, did you did you contact? I mean, I know in terms of fundraising, so I imagine you you chatted with charities and and um, I guess prominent people. 
um, the big cheeses, as it were, that, that, that can sort of, you know, raise this sort of profile. So how did it go from there? Uh, yeah, it was... The reason it's not been done before is because in I st we started it, say I, we started this in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, and we are still trying to find the funding to put this on uh, mm -hmm. to the level. What we don't want this to be is a... Um, a sports day in a field. We want this yeah. to be a proper national asset celebration that's yeah. in the sporting calendar year on year to recognise these people, these individuals. Mm. So to, to enable us to do that um, it is proving difficult to find the funding. We have all the venues. We've got all the sports governing bodies on board. There isn't a single person that we've spoken to that has said, what, this is not not going to work. What? Why are you doing this? Mm. Everybody thinks it's a great idea, mm. um, but it's really tough, uh, and that's why probably no one's done it before. Because yeah. to find funding uh, in this day and age is very difficult. Uh, yeah. um, but we believe it's the right cause, and we believe that we will find the funding and we will put this on. Um, so when I come up with the idea, I I run it by a few people. They all again said it was a great idea. So I phoned a friend of mine, uh, Simon Ryder. Uh, I've known Simon for about 10 years. Uh, he's a very, very experienced businessman who was looking to come to retirement about it uh, probably last year. Um, yeah. So I've prevented, <laughs> I've prevented that for him. Yeah. Um, he was managing director of JD International in Germany at the time. Okay. And I said to him, Simon, I've got an idea. Uh, you've got the business sense. Do you think it's going to work? Do you think it's got any legs? And he said, where do I sign? Let's put this on. <laughs> so from, from that day, uh, in about April 2019, Simon and I um, have been working on this with a number of other uh, people. Um, and it's a daily a daily pursuit to get this off the ground and make this a reality. And, and we're still, we're still pushing. Right. Uh, and we just, yeah. Well, well, fantastic. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned, so way back in 2019, I say way back, because I think people's concept of time seems to be lost over the last couple of years. But do you think given, given what we've experienced over the last couple of years, that this idea of yours has kind of gained, gained more prominence that people kind of recognize the need for something like this to happen, given, given what, you know, your, your own testimony and, and, and others and, yeah, I, I would think so. I think from a, from an emergency services point of view uh, and all emergency responders, um, I think the need has always been there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the trauma that we see has been there. And if we, we can go back to the, the 70s, 80s, 2000s, that trauma has always been there. Yeah. The way that we've coped with it mm -hmm. is, is changing. Uh, and as a, as a society, we're becoming... A, much better at recognizing and accepting um, whether it be um, people with depression with anxiety with PTSD whatever it may be mm. we are in a much better place as a, as a nation mm. um, but I don't believe that the general public really understood where the those emergency responders where they were mentally yeah. across the whole of the UK yeah. and I think that's the biggest thing is it's highlighting to, to the public that yes we go to work every day and yes we are expected that when you pick up the phone and dial 999 or um, whatever else 
that when we turn up, we're yeah. going to do a fantastic job and we're going to make your life so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but ours or, or those within the emergency services, yeah. they go home and sometimes the, the support isn't there for them. And that's what we need to, we need to really address. Yeah. Um, it's been fascinating talking to you. We're almost reaching the end, Mike. Um, before before I ask you about you know how people can be involved in various contact details, I think listeners listening to you would appreciate just how you know um, lucid you are and how kind of you know you talked about your colleagues' mental health. But in case anyone's out there curious about your own self and your own issue with mental health, um, um, is there a backstory there? What what can you sort of say that might sort of resonate with others that might inspire them to tell their own story about you know their own mental health? Um, yeah, I, I would say I'm, I'm uh, a very lucky in a sense that I have a fantastic family around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I share with my wife and my family um, when I'm feeling down or mm-hmm. if I go to an incident that's particularly not very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't use specifics, but I'm comfortable and will always open openly discuss with uh, my family, yeah. uh, what I've seen to a degree, how I feel, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that's that's helped me uh, mm-hmm. hugely in yeah. the last twenty years in the fire service. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I have, as I said earlier, I've seen many people not be so lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it be they can't talk, or they don't feel they can talk, or there's this toxic masculinity that uh, yeah. is just it needs changing and we need to address it. And there is, there is nothing wrong with um, putting your hand up. If you're in a group of five people following an incident and they say, right, does anybody feel they need uh, debriefing from this incident? Mm -hmm. Quite often, as soon as one says no, they all go, no, 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 we're okay. But there is nothing wrong with being that one that says, actually, I'd like to talk about it because uh, it's affected me or I'd like to understand if, this happens post this, what that effect means, mm-hmm. and then I can deal with it uh, and go and get the support that I need. And I think that's the, that's the most important thing is recognizing yourself mm-hmm. when certain things may change, whether it be sleep patterns or anything else, mm-hmm. and putting your hand up and saying, I, I want to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean to say that you have depression or anxiety or PTSD or any other type of mental health, yeah. uh, but if you don't deal with it, when you recognize it, mm. it could become something a lot more. Yeah, very sound words. Yeah, I mean, I'm in a similar boat in that um, I feel that I, I am lucky that that I do have a, you know, a decent network around me, you know, family, friends and so on. But it just makes you think of those out there that don't have that, who aren't so lucky and you just want to reach out and help. So, um, yeah, just very wise words. So on to the games. Um, when are they scheduled for? And how can people be involved and how can they get in touch? So the games are planned for April, May of 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, we have some amazing venues. So we have the Etihad Complex uh, lined up for uh, a large number of the events. Yeah. We have a couple of events in Lincolnshire, mm-hmm. uh, one or two in Buckinghamshire and you can visit um, our website, so gratitudegames.uk, and mm-hmm. all the details of the sports are on there. Uh, that's where entry will take place once we open the registration. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, just looking to – it's really going to hopefully become a celebration of 
the, the UK's emergency responders. That's what we want. One big party, really. Excellent, excellent. I mean, is there a special there's a request in terms of more funding that you want to make out there? I mean, what what sort of specifics are you are you looking looking for as well as well as you know people's participation and support and of course sharing everything on social media and all all that comes with that? Yeah, I mean, it it, it goes without saying if there are any any organisations, philanthropists, anybody out there that that sees this as a as a um, a great cause and a great reason to get behind their emergency services and responders, uh, then we are looking for um, uh, sponsorship donations to put the games on. Um, it, it's, it's, it, once we put it on for the first time, it will self-generate yeah. to be able to, to be sustainable within itself yeah. for future years. Yeah. Uh, we have an agreement with, Manchester in um, a verbal agreement that we will take this back to Manchester for at least the next five years, right. uh, and and we we honestly believe we will raise a minimum of, if, as long as we can put this on a minimum of ten million pounds over the next five years wow. for yeah. mental health of our emergency responders, and that's that's the okay. driver that keeps us going to know that if we can get this off the ground, yeah. it will survive itself. Excellent. And Gratitude Games can be found on Twitter and on uh, Facebook and all the other various um, social media platforms. So uh, it's out there for everybody. Yes. Um, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, thanks for thanks for hooking up, and and we can uh, let's let's have the, let's do this again soon and see where you are. And if there's anything more we can help with, um, we'd be glad to. But just just a, a great idea. Like I said, it's it's it should have been one that sort of like should have been made, you know, born born years ago, but. It was, such as thank heavens you had that dream. <laughs> Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, would we? So, um, excellent. Good on you, and good on your colleague. Good on your colleagues, and thanks again for particularly over the last couple of years. Um, just the fantastic work that that you've you've done in looking after all of us. And um, yeah, good wishes and mental health, and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, mate. Likewise. Cheers, Ricky. Thank you. So that brings the end of part one. Join us again for part two, where I'll have another great guest. And this has been Mentally Sound Life in Lockdown podcast series. Join me again soon. Cheers. Episode 73, this is part two. Many thanks to Mike in part one, and let's hope that the Gratitude Games, what a great name it is, launches successfully next year and they get the coverage and it's something they can do very annually. So on to part two, I've got another fantastic guest with me. See how this started because it's quite funny. Because when you're doing a radio show or a podcast, sometimes you go around with your journalistic hat on and you, you've got your antennae and you want to sort of scan what's going out there and, and um, you know, it's a great way of picking up a story. So, going back, I think it was a couple of years, I was walking out of Tesco, do, you know, carrying my shopping, and I saw this guy crouching down in front of a betting shop, and he was making a banner. And I was quite convinced that, you know, this was a, you know, a protest thing going on, and unfortunately, I didn't have time to, you know, um, go over and chat to him. But as luck would have it, only a few weeks ago, um, a guy who I thought was the very same man, happened to be um, standing outside of another betting shop, just on the other side of that building, I think it was. And I was, I was on my way to doing some banking, so yet again I couldn't do a stop and chat, but I did take a sly photograph because on his banner he had his contact details. Well, as, as it turns out, you know, wavy magic wand, here he is. He's sitting before me. 
we're at the Tyneside Bar Cafe and uh, we're going to have a little chat to talk about his uh, protest. As I gathered, and, uh, and you know, my my inquisition was quite right, it is to do with um, the whole issue of problem gambling. It's an issue we've talked about before on the radio show and the podcast. But um, So first of all, let me welcome Sam. How are you, sir? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm really excited to be here. So, yeah, thanks. You're very welcome, mate. You're very welcome. Um, as I ask all my guests, um, how are you doing? And as these podcasts are called Life in Lockdown, um, how's the last sort of 18, 19 months been for you on a, in terms of, you know, your well-being and how you dealt with lockdown? And, you know, were, were all your sort of friends and family okay regarding the virus? So I always struggle to answer that question with how are you? Yeah. I think most people ask that question basically just being polite. They're not yeah. really asking. But... Um, Yes, yeah, so have I been during the last 19 months during lockdown? Well, I can tell you that I was working for McDonald's in Durham and I got furloughed. Yeah. I was getting like £400 every two weeks and um, every single two weeks I would gamble all of that money online. I'd literally come midnight, get paid, and I'd be like, gamble the money. Then I'm like, okay, I get paid again in two weeks. I'm not going to gamble the money in two weeks from now. I will not do that. And I believed it. And then two weeks later, midnight, logging in, gambled the money. And as you can imagine, as that keeps happening, it has a real detrimental effect on your mental health. Yeah. And it affects all areas of your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I feel like I've been fortunate. None of my friends or family have caught the virus yeah. or anything like that. Um, I've managed to dodge it as well, fortunately, you know, touch wood. And, um, yeah, so I've been very fortunate. But Good. my heart goes out Good for to people, hear. you know, that... It's really interesting because, so listeners, you'd be well aware of what this um, issue is about, um, problem gambling. And if this is an issue that strikes home with you, if it touches a nerve, then please, please, please go and, go and find the relevant help at your GP nearby therapist and crisis centre. We can't emphasise that as, as big as it is because it is a huge issue. Um, so that's really interesting, Sam. So would you say that the whole lockdown period kind of exacerbated the, the deep-seated issue that you've had? Because this has been a this has been an issue for about 10 years now, hasn't it? Yes, so I'm 33 now. Um, on my 23rd birthday, I walked into a betting shop having never placed a bet before. I was actually out shopping in Bristol uh, for a pair of jeans with my birthday money. And I stopped outside a bet, a bet Fred, and yeah. um, I walked in curious. I'd never placed a bet or committed a crime up to that point. And I went up to a fixed odds betting terminal, a yeah. slot machine, and I became addicted to gambling from that moment on. Mm -hmm. I literally ran home, grabbed the rest of my money, ran back to the shop, put all of that in. The next day I was, literally the next day I was out shoplifting. I'd not committed a crime up to that point in my life. So, Fast forward 10 years, yeah. so to answer your question, how's lockdown affected me? Well, I feel like when you've, when you've got a gambling addiction, so I actually noticed no difference in my life. Yeah. I feel like what everyone's been experiencing the last 19 months during lockdown, I feel like I've been experiencing it for like 10 years in the yeah. fact that gambling addiction makes you isolated, it can affect your finances, mm -hmm. um, obviously debt as well yeah, is yeah. a big thing. Yeah. and. So, honestly, lockdown hasn't actually really affected me. Mm. Uh, if, if anything, um, it's the same. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. What I find interesting is that most people I've chatted to when they talk about their experience, especially in terms of employment and furlough, 
um, they would often say that furlough, in a way, has been you know a bit of a lifesaver for them. But imagine with someone like yourself having this deep-seated problem, it actually became problematic because, of course, we were all bored in lockdown, need nothing to do. We tried working from home. Some of us managed it, some of us didn't. But someone with, with the issues that you have, I mean, temptation got the better of you. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I wasn't at work. I was at home. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I would have gambled that money online had we had a lockdown or not. Yeah. I mean, um, but however, I do know that lockdown has massively increased online gambling. Yeah. Of course it has. Everyone's been at home, like you just said, and people have had time on their hands, mm -hmm. boredom, mm -hmm. and so they want some entertainment. And so, yeah, um, yeah of course, it's already been proven that... Because I remember like a lot of a lot of people in the media, the, the sort of we the well-meaning therapists out there were telling us to do the stuff that we enjoy, do the stuff that, you know, keeps us at bay from, you know, ill thoughts and everything. But, but to a problem problematic gambler, it's sort of like, well, that's a different story, isn't it? You're kind of heading towards something that's become the, the bane of your life, isn't it? Yeah, so. So returning to my glimpse of you uh, standing outside um, a betting shop and, and of course having the look to see you again two years later, um, describe what, what's going on currently, what your current campaign is. I know that you've done some very left field creative ways of late, we'll get onto that, but um, describe what you have on your banner and, and what your current sort of goal is at the moment. Okay, well, today I'm on day 214 of my campaign, and my campaign is called the Members Only Campaign. I'll explain why in a second. Yeah. However, um, 214 days ago, I made myself the promise that I would do everything I could to improve the UK's betting shop self-exclusion scheme. And like you say, I've done some pretty out-the-box stuff, which we can talk about. Yeah. But let's fast forward about, let's fast forward 160 days. So about 60 days ago, my maths is a bit off there, but you get my point. 60 days ago, I started standing outside the front of betting shops. I actually left my flat in Liverpool. This is mental, but I literally made myself intentionally homeless. I left my accommodation in Liverpool because I wasn't getting anywhere with my campaign in Liverpool. Yeah. After emailing MPs, emailing the betting shops, um, I also got a hidden camera and I went into the betting shops as self-excluded and I filmed them serving me as a self-excluded problem gambler because I, I already knew that the system doesn't work so I thought I'd show people but even that wasn't working for me so I thought how am I going to take my campaign to the next level so I, I thought come back to the northeast I spent six years here I love yeah. the northeast I've got friends and stuff here which I thought would support my campaign so I did. So I literally got on a train from Liverpool. I had 50 quid to my name because I just gambled on a slot machine very recently wow. before leaving Liverpool. And um, I come to Stanley and yeah. I spent um, the first night outside Betfred in Stanley. Wow. And I spent about five days in Stanley. Yeah. I spent one day outside each betting shop. Wow. Then I went to Durham. Uh, did all the betting shots there when I went up through Burtley. I was sleeping rough the whole time in the evenings. Wow. And then Newcastle, and then I got rehoused in Newcastle. And since then, I've, as you say, to link up to where we are now, um, you obviously saw me outside Betfred <laughs> did, yeah. with my sign. Yeah. And my sign says that 
fixed odds betting terminals, their slot machines, they should be con they should require mandatory membership to protect people who are addicted to them. Yeah. And that's why I called my campaign the members only campaign. Because I think that to go on a fixed odds betting terminal, you should have to be a member, hence members only campaign. Mm. But does when you when you say become a member, um, does does a member sort of like signify someone who is in control of their finances, someone who doesn't get affected by gambling? I'm just intrigued by the word member here. Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked me that. So I can answer that by giving you two examples. Sure. So I just gotta quickly explain one thing to you for you to fully understand. Mm -hmm. So in our high street, mm -hmm. you get slot machines. You can find them in casinos and bingo halls yeah. and arcades and betting shops and pubs and service stations. They're all over the place. Now, the betting shops in the arcades have one type of self-exclusion scheme that does not work. Mm -hmm. And the casinos and bingo halls have a membership-based self-exclusion scheme that does work. Right. Now, let me just elaborate a little bit. Yeah. So, you know I just said that the betting shop self-exclusion scheme and the arcade self-exclusion scheme doesn't work? Mm -hmm. Basically, Metro Radio and the BBC and um, the Daily Mail did this experiment where they went and ban banned themselves from a, majority, a large number of betting shops. Yeah. Then they went and placed a bet in the betting shops that they'd self-excluded from as self-excluded. And a result of the experiment every single time was that the majority of the time they didn't get recognised. Mm -hmm. So Andy from Metro Radio just did this in Newcastle, eight betting shops. He got ID'd in all eight betting shops and he didn't get recognised even once. So that's the betting shop side of things and the arcade side of things. Mm -hmm. Now, to answer your question, um, I went into a bingo hall the other day to test their scheme because yeah. they've got a membership-based scheme where all their slot machines are in members-only areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I literally walked into the bingo hall yeah. and I tried to just walk in up to a slot machine as yeah. I would in a betting shop. And um, the staff were like, whoa, whoa, where are you going? And I was like, I'm just going to go use the slot machine. I was playing cool. And by the way, I'd already barred myself on it, this thing. Right, right. And um, they said, no, you can't go in there unless you're a member. Mm -hmm. And they were like, would you like to register for a membership? And I was like, well, I can't register for a membership for the next five years because yeah. I'm banned through your self-exclusion scheme. Yeah. Does, does, that make, does that make sense? Yeah. It makes um, sense, but it doesn't make sense from what they're trying to do, point of view, you know what I mean? It's just like... If you're if you're if you're banned, then why would you you know be entitled to become a member? Sort of thing doesn't. It's counteractive, isn't it? It's like yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow. Um, that's really intriguing, especially the the homelessness part of it. I mean, before my next question, I mean, when you came up here, like you say, you only had fifty quid on you. How did you manage to sustain yourself whilst you were sleeping rough outside all these different betting shops? I just I, I, so it's crazy. Like after you. Um, it's like your body adjusts to not eating food. Wow. It's, it's amazing. It's so strange, like, how your suffering actually turns into a fascination. Right. Because you go so long without food that you think, surely I'm going to, like, I don't know, drop down. But you don't. But you must have had friends, yeah. and friends and colleagues saying, Sam, this is too much, you know, there's other ways to do this. But were you just sort of very self-driven that this is... You're going to do this no matter what because you think it was the best way to raise awareness of this then? It's, well, well, if the, the truth is that in Liverpool, 
on, yeah. you know, I said 214 yeah. days ago, I made a promise. Yeah, yeah. On that day, I'll just say it, on that day I was yeah. going to kill myself, basically. Um, I'd, I'd found a really peaceful and painless way of doing it after doing a lot of research during the last 10 years. Well, during the last five years, actually. Yeah. Um, and um, my, I got disrupted that day, like, and it, it ruined my get-out plan. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a bit of time to reevaluate what I was going to do. And so I said, this is crazy, but I didn't become Sam anymore. Sam died in Liverpool 214 days ago. I know this is dramatic, but yeah. this is what I was thinking at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking that um, instead of doing what I was planning on doing, I, I actually just said what I'll do is I'll just do it outside the betting This is awful, but I said I'd kill myself outside the front of the betting shop. I felt like they were the ones, in a way, like I said, when I was 23, I went on a slot machine. They were, in a way, partly responsible for getting me... Their machines got me hooked to gambling. And um, so I felt it, just morally, it just felt right that I don't want to, I didn't want to die in my flat on my own, like, and that would you be You kind of wanted to go out whilst making a point at the same time. So Absolutely. I, I just felt it was so important and so morally just that um, what's going on in our high street is the betting shops have got this front on their on their shop window. They've got this um, facade. It says when the fun stops, stop. It, it's trying to say we care about our customers. And then they've got set limits and take breaks. And But it's actually not true. None of it's true. Let me give you an example. Um, I was outside Betfred in Berkeley. I spent a day outside there with my banner about um, six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And the area manager from Be um, Betfred came out to see me and he said they, were, they said they were worried about me and they wanted to see how they could help. Mm -hmm. So he said to me, Sam, how can we help you? So I said to him, you can put your slot machines into members only areas. Yeah. I said, will you do that? And he said, no. And I was like, why? He said, because we'll lose too much money. And it, before I gave him a benefit of a doubt, but after that... That kind of symbolised the profiteering aspect of a... Yeah, you know, profit ethical, before people. Yeah, yeah, he he yeah. asked me, as a problem gambler who's addicted to their product, their machines... But it missed, at least he yeah. admitted it in a way that you kind of like... I respect him for yeah. admitting yeah. it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But I was, I was thinking, I actually said to him, if... If you put your slot machines into members-only areas, how good would Betfred look? Like, you would actually be showing that you do actually really do care about yeah. your customers. Yeah. So you had a massive opportunity to really make real dramatic change. Because if Betfred do it, and they're the first ones to lead the way, then all the other companies will hopefully follow. Could a manager, yeah. could a manager of an individual betting shop make those changes, or would they have to go to head office and something they have to do nationwide? Yes. Yeah, so he was only the area manager right. of the northeast. Yeah. So of course he would have to go to yeah. head office. Yeah. And if I had the money, which of course um I keep losing all my money on slot machines every payday. So you notice a particular thing with the way scratch cards are displayed in shops, and it's really a really good point because. So much was made about sweets being near tills and how tempting it is to, you know, buy, buy you know, because we have, you know, this sort of uh, beastly crisis or, or crisis in, in terms of how we consume food in this country and the Western world. But you think the same problem lies with, with, with the scratch cards thing, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they put the scratch cards right at the till yeah. and they brand the scratch cards. Yeah. Um, 
like the Monopoly thing always was the scratch card for me and yeah. I think everyone has their own kind of branding yeah. that they connect to yeah. and uh, you know you know, we were saying you know it's like cigarettes mm-hmm. the way the way smoking's gone mm-hmm. I feel like gambling is hopefully is following the same route that smoking well many went. shops keep keep cigarettes behind shutters now don't they because yes. it's, it's so detrimental and harmful to our health absolutely so in, in that yeah. in that comparison then how much do you feel that problem gambling is underrated in terms of you know how it destroys people in society there's always so i feel like the, it's the minority of people mm-hmm. actually i've got a better way of explaining this yeah. so let's just say for example i don't know there's a guy called jim and he smokes cigarettes mm-hmm. And he can go into a betting shop and go on a slot machine and control it. But when it comes to smoking cigarettes, he, he doesn't win against that addiction. That's like his weakness. But then you might get a woman, I don't know, named Jill. But she can't go on a slot machine and control herself. But she can when it comes to cigarettes. Like a guy called John, he might be able to have a pint. But then another guy has one pint and then he'll keep drinking and then he'll keep drinking the next day. So what I'm trying to say is everybody in society, we all got our own weakness in some way, shape or form. And it just so happens that my weakness in life is gambling. Mm -hmm. And so what people might argue, if it's the minority of people that are being affected by gambling and the majority of people are okay, then why should the minority I don't know, let's say spoil it for the majority. Yeah. Like, for example, free bets being banned and gambling adverts being banned. There might be people who say, well, I want a free bet. Why should I lose my right to a free bet? Yeah. For, for the minority, they, they should control themselves sort of mm-hmm. thing. But again, it comes back to that uh, understanding that, we've again, we've all got our own weaknesses. Sure. And so if people can understand that and get their head around that, and then then this whole country would be a better place because we'd all understand each other and we'd all help each other and work together instead of judging each other. And that would be a massive step forward, yeah. Great point. Sam, can you describe for me and the listeners, just exact, for those that don't understand especially, kind of the lure of gambling, not just with slot machines, because, you know, online gambling is a big thing now. Um, Just describe as an an addict um, what that lure is like. I mean... Is it literally like sort of tunnel vision? Yes, this is that. Well, not so. I feel like with it, as you'll know, right? With addiction, it um, comes in all shapes and forms. Mm-hmm. And even with mental health, mm-hmm. take addiction out of it. Just mental health in general. Mm-hmm. It um, it displays itself in different ways, and yep. everyone reacts differently, but yep. also quite similar, similar mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, to get back to what you said. Um, what happens with me personally doesn't happen like this, I'm sure, for every person, every problem gambler. But for me, what happens is I say to myself, I'm just going to bet £20. And I believe it. And it doesn't, even after 10 years, literally a week ago, I was, I was about to get paid and I was like, I'm not going to gamble this payday. Believing it. But then you've got a voice saying back in your head like, no, because you said that last payday and you said it the payday before, but you say no this payday I'm definitely not going to do it and you believe it and that's part of the illness it it fools you into actually really believing that you won't do it again and then you say you relapse Mm -hmm. and you say I'm just going to bet £20 but you put that £20 into the machine let's say you lose the 20 quid 
you think, well, if I put another tenner in, I might be able to win my £20 back. Then you might lose that tenner, and then you, you're like, well, I'm now 30 in. I've only got like, I don't know, let's say you've got like £300 to live on for a month. You're starting to think, well, if I take out my rent, my electric, everything, I'm actually now not going to have enough money to get through the month. So you think, oh no, and then you're panicking. So you think, well, I'll put another tenner in and try and get that. And before you know it, you're in this vicious cycle, this vicious conversation, this vicious, vicious cycle in your head. And what ends up happening to me is I always end up gambling to oblivion. Even if I win, which happens, yeah. I gamble the next day. So I never win. But even though I know I never win, and even though I know that the odds are not great on these machines, and there's better ways of gambling, yeah. I still do it. So it it's, doesn't make any sense. Even I though I know it doesn't. It, I think I you've explained it. it really vividly. And um, right. thank you very much for being so candid with that. In again, in our sort of pre-chat to you know before I hit the record button, we talked about how it's often the vulnerable which are sort of like good fodder for for this industry. Um, we talked about the ratio of, of betting shops within sort of less affluent areas. Um, tell the listeners out there what your opinion is of that, and plus, as regards to the high street, um, how that sort of does does that do they in a way target? And um, because I guess. You know, to, to just average Joe's punters, the passerbys that walk down up, up and down the high street, like you did, you said you walked in the very first betting shop out of curiosity. Is is Are they kind of there to, to kind of be curious to people, do you think, that kind of catch people out when they might not have intentionally wanted oh, to walk in? Well, well, it's already been proven. I, I shouldn't laugh. I only laugh because it's so awful that it's yeah. like... But it's already been proven that the um, majority of the percentage of the pro profits, pardon me, <clears throat> come from the minority percentage of the customers. So I didn't used to believe this. I used to give the betting shops the benefit of the gambling industry a benefit of the doubt. And I yeah. thought surely they cannot do business that way. That can't be true. Mm -hmm. And then it's as I've researched and I've listened to more and more people like Matt Zarp Cousins, mm -hmm. he was the man that got stakes reduced in betting shops from £100 down to £2. Yeah. As more I listened to him, the more I realised that, yeah, the large percentage of the profits do come from the small number of the customers who are addicted. Their whole business model yeah. is literally designed to, to, to get the money from the people that are addicted to their products. You know, it's as you like, were saying before yeah. about um, when you were bored, yet um, you found that you weren't bored. It's almost like I remember the story regarding, um, to compare it with another addiction, say like um, alcoholism. I remember George Best, the late George Best's wife, went round the houses literally to all the pubs within the area says, you must not serve my husband. Okay, that's interesting. And, um, right. but, but they didn't all get that because it, mm. it was also the power of celebrity the moment he walks into a bar. Right. Everyone wants to serve him, they want to be his friend. Of course, yeah. And he, yeah. that just fed his addiction even more and sadly, you know, led to his, led to his demise. So really interesting comparison well, there. Just to touch on what you just yeah, said yeah. there, um, I was actually sitting again outside of um, betting shop with my sign protesting as, as usual. And um, this guy walked past me and he pointed at me. He was actually angry at me. And he said, what you're doing there, mate, is the equivalent of an alcoholic sitting outside the front of a pub. Yeah. And I thought about that for days. And then what I realized is if you've got like a thousand pounds in your bank, 
you can't walk into a pub and spend a thousand pounds in, I don't know, like an hour or two, like you can in a betting shop. Mm. And you're not then gonna maybe go home and think, I've got to keep this a secret from my family because if they find out, you know what the consequences can be yeah, and yeah. No, you don't want that to happen. Yeah, yeah. So you think, maybe I'll get a payday loan and then to cover your tracks. But, but now you've lost your wages. You've got a yeah. secret you've got to somehow keep. You've yeah. got a payday loan. You've yeah. got the guilt. And some people might even then use that payday loan and go and gamble again to try and recoup their money. Yeah. And so... Um, I'm now 12 months online gamble free thanks to GamStop Fantastic. that worked for me that's an example I don't even think about gambling online anymore like that bug has gone out of my head and it's an example of how you can control gambling addiction do you feel that the yeah. disclaimers that they put out there you know they, I guess they they've become aware of of the petitions and protests like yourself and the campaigns to you know um, highlight this problem they put a little disclaimers at the end of the adverts often here on the radio but you don't feel that goes far enough do you well you see so many gambling adverts don't you yeah but how many adverts do you see for safeguarding i mean how many william hill adverts have you ever seen but literally the whole advert is dedicated to advising customers of the safeguards no, it's often yeah. the, it's often the fun and the faces yeah, right. of, of faces of winners. But I mean, how many yeah, winners yeah. are there in this case compared to you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. I just I just know that they can do so much. They've got what I've done with no money proves that they've got so much money, yeah. and and if they just put their thinking caps on and actually really genuinely wanted to help. The you know the minority of people that are addicted to their products, they can, they just don't, and I think it's because it will cost them money to do yeah. that. Um, but the way I see it is that's an investment because first rule of business is to be ethical because yeah. if you're not, in the long run, it will come back and bite you. You've you've took another left field way of, of raising awareness <laughs> and uh, have, yeah. people who are aware of your your presence online. Um, if you didn't think. Um, standing outside with betting shops with banners was, um, you know, outlandish enough. Tell us about your latest adventure. Well, well, just to say, before I stood outside the front of betting shops, before that, um, I literally went into betting shops with a hidden camera. Yeah. I, like, cut a hole in my top and I filmed them yeah. serving me as self-excluded. But, mate, to answer your question, I built, as, as you know, <laughs> I've, bu I've built a boat. Yeah. Um, I said, as I mentioned, um, I gambled my money about a week ago, and yeah. so I've left myself nothing for three weeks. Normal thing. But before that, I, gamb I gambled eight weeks worth of money, so I had to go through eight weeks. And um, so I was like, literally at a point of suicidal thoughts, and I was, so I was thinking, well, what am I gonna do? Like, so I, I uh, found a sofa, and I found a fridge freezer that had been dumped, right. and um, I dragged it all home, and I took the metal panels off the fridge freezer and I had to cut through it with hand pliers. It took like a week and my hands were killing me. But I literally put it all together and I made this boat. And so my plans are to go in the River Tyne. That's what I really want to do with my advertising my petition mm -hmm. about putting slot machines in members only areas. And uh, what I'm gonna do is go up to the lakes for now and just go around the lakes. My aim is to get 100,000 signatures on my petition yeah. I've got five months left. I've only got 32 signatures as of right now. Three. Well, on a homemade boat, um, you know, 
going in circles around a big lake. If that doesn't yeah. garner attention, I don't know what will. So. <laughs> well, that sounds that sounds uh, wow. Yeah. Again, for anyone listening out there, want to know more about you? How can they find details? Yeah, so you, you can find me on Facebook. I keep a daily diary of everything that's going on. And my name's Samuel Badcock. It's called the Members Only Campaign because, again, I think you should have to be a member to be able to use a fixed odds betting terminal, hence Members Only Campaign. And, yeah, and that's how you can find me on Facebook and you'll find my petition there. Just thanks for having me on the show, man. I, no, no, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm so glad that, um, you know, the power of positive networking that um, when you when you see something that's really curious and you can get them to speak um, I'm glad this worked out for both of us um, really cool who knows who, who knew that two years ago when I first saw you crouch down in front of that betting shop you'd be you know it took time getting there of course because of lockdown but yeah um, good luck to you mate and you. Um, same to you by the way thanks very yeah. much and um for all your listeners out there, thanks for tuning in. This has been another Mentally Sound Life and Lockdown podcast. Tune in for some more Mentally Sound Life and Lockdown next week. Look after your health, but more importantly, look after your mental health. Until next time, thanks everyone. Thank you, Sam. Take care.